Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Mark 10, Mark 10, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, del- will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What does the cross mean? What does it symbolize? Why do we emphasize the cross so much? I mean, the cross is a gruesome object of execution. The Romans reserved it for the vilest of criminals. And yet, we have come to feel very comfortable with its display around us. We wear it in necklaces, bracelets, jewelry. We stick it to our bumpers. We hang it on our walls. We display it on our buildings. What other method of execution receives such love and appreciation? I mean, we wouldn't dare display an electric chair or a guillotine with such pride. If somebody did, that would be disturbing and offended. And rightly so. But the cross is different, isn't it? Because the cross symbolizes something that goes far beyond its original purpose. The cross for us is not merely a tool for executions. The cross for us is a place. A place where the justice and mercy of God met. The cross is the place where Jesus finished the work he came to accomplish. The the cross is the place where salvation flowed. But sometimes our familiarity with the cross can cause us to forget the depth of its meaning. The cross is all around us, so we neglect to feel the shock the scandal, the sting that has to be associated with it. And if we forget the scandal of the cross, we risk forgetting the salvation that it affords. Jesus knew of this risk, so he preemptively helped his disciples understand the depth of his looming death 
on the cross. Our text for today is what theologians call a passion prediction. Jesus is about to predict his passion. The word passion comes from the Latin passio, which means suffering. The passion of the Christ refers to the final days of, of his suffering culminating with his death on Calvary. This is the third and final passion prediction in the Gospel of Mark. This is also the, mo the most detailed passion prediction out of all. We saw it first in Mark 8.31. Then Jesus reaffirms it in Mark 9.30 and 31. And now, finally, we see in our text for today. This is the most detailed of all the predictions, of all three passion predictions. And just as it was helpful for the disciples of Jesus to receive this teaching from Jesus, my prayer is that our text for today will rekindle our love for the cross on which our Savior died. So as we turn to our text today, we, we have two points. First, we'll consider Jesus' determination. And then we'll consider Jesus' destitution. Jesus' determination and Jesus' destitution. So first, consider his determination. As we pick up the narrative on verse 32, Mark tells us that they were on the road, perhaps better put, they were on the way to Jerusalem. This is the first time we're actually told in the Gospel of Mark what Jesus' final destiny would be, what his final destination would be. Notice Mark tells us that they are going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, a couple months ago, we saw that Jesus went to the northernmost points of the, the land of Israel, he went to Caesarea Philippi, right? There Peter recognized him to be the Christ. And there he said, I must go and die. So Jesus has been going with his disciples south ever since the end of Mark 8. And yet Mark tells us that they're headed up to Jerusalem. Headed up to Jerusalem. So why, why does Mark say up to Jerusalem and not down if they're going down south? Well, because Mark is not making a directional statement. He's making a typographical statement. Jerusalem is a city of high elevation. So they were going uphill towards Jerusalem. But not only that, Mark wants to highlight the honor of the city. This is the city of David. This is the city of peace. This is the great Zion. No one ever goes down to Zion. It's a way of speak of the honor, of the importance of the city. Notice what Jesus does here. 
as he is going towards Jerusalem, he was walking, but not among the people. He was walking ahead of them. As someone walks towards the finish line of a marathon, as someone who chases after a prize. Mark wants us to see that Jesus didn't go to the cross tentatively or, be, or begrudgingly. He went to the cross assertively. Jesus was determined. He was resolute. He was leading the pack. Jesus did not operate, operate out of fear, but faith. Jesus was the only one who understood what was about to happen. And yet he was the most eager out of all the people to accomplish it. The task ahead was overwhelming. At a point still Jesus would pray, let this cop pass from me. And yet he is marching triumphantly. He is contrasted with those who were around him, right? We're told the people around him were fearful. They were amazed, but they're fearful. But fear is something that we do not see in Jesus. Because he trusted the Father in his plan. Jesus' resolute attitude here tells us two things. First, the cross was Jesus' choice. He chose it. He was going to it because he owned it. Jesus was not crucified against his will or against his desire, but his will was to accomplish the will of the Father. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not something that just happened. The cross was God's First plan from the very beginning. We can't look at the cross and think of it as anything other than that was the place where Jesus gave his life. The life of Jesus was not taken from him. He gave it. He didn't lose it. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, while we associate death, especially humiliating death, like death on the cross with weakness, for Christ, dying was the result of his power for Christ dying was the accomplishment of his purpose. We associate death with defeat. But for Christ, his death was the accomplishment of his mission. And he led the way because he was giving up his life gladly. Not because it was easy, but because his death accomplished redemption. 
the redemption of his people. But secondly, we also see that the cross was for Jesus alone. What we see on the road here is a foreshadowing of what would happen to the cross. This fear that the disciples and the other followers of Christ had would actually increase to the point that they would leave Christ. The crowd turned against him and cried out, Give us Barabbas. The disciples forsook him. Peter denied him. Judas Iscariot betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus is alone here. And Jesus would be alone on the cross. Why? Well, when the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, tell us where you're going. With the intent of going with him, he tells them, where I'm going, you cannot go. The cross was for Christ alone. Because the cross was the place where the spotless Lamb of God would bear on his shoulders the sin of the world. Jesus is alone leading the way to the cross. In a few weeks, he would find himself alone again, crying out even to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Friends, as Jesus takes on the cross, the entire kingdom of God is comprised of one man in one place. The entire faithful remnant of God is one man, Christ Jesus. And that's good news for us. Because if you and I took on the cross, we would fail. But because Jesus takes on the cross, we in him have victory. The cross was not just Jesus' destiny. It was also a place where Jesus would be destitute. So let's consider now the destitution of Christ. The word destitute means that someone does not have even his basic needs met. We can talk about people who are destitute because they don't have shelter, food, home. Or we can think of a person who is destitute because they don't have support. They don't have others around them. And this is clearly what happens to Jesus. Jesus here draws his disciples in. He calls the twelve to himself, which helps us understand what is going on here. There seems to indicate that Jesus was traveling with more than just his disciples, just the twelve. Some sort of traveling caravan that is going on. Perhaps some of the crowd that had decided to follow Jesus. But the twelve were special. So Jesus draws them in. We see him doing that over and over again. Why? Because the 12 disciples would eventually be called the 12 apostles. 
A disciple is a student, but an apostle is someone who is sent to represent his master. So Jesus is preparing the disciples to rightly represent him. So they need to understand the depths of the cross. By the way, friends, understanding the cross of Christ is discipleship 101. And understanding the cross of Christ is not just what we need in order to be saved. Understanding the cross of Christ is what we need to walk faithfully, to represent Christ well. The disciples needed to understand the cross in order for them to be representatives of Christ. So we never graduate from the message of the cross. The message of the cross is not just the message that we received because we were sinners and now that we're sinners, we're done with the cross. The cross ought to be always before us. The message of the cross is what enables us to walk faithfully day in and day out. So Jesus calls them to himself because they would eventually carry on the ministry of the kingdom. So Jesus draws them in and tells him what is about to happen to him. So Jesus reminds them of the destination. They're going up to Jerusalem. This is important. But what is more important, the location is important. But what is more important is what would happen in Jerusalem. Remember that Jerusalem has become an apostate city. Jerusalem, the great city, city of King David, the city that has seen great prophets and kings, has become a den of robbers, a brood of vipers. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem in order to save Jerusalem. And what would happen in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem, Jesus would take upon himself guilt and shame. Both are important. Jesus would take upon himself in Jerusalem guilt and shame. Now, thus far, in the past two passion predictions that we have seen, Jesus has talked about him, himself taking on the cross guilt. But now this passion prediction adds shame. And we'll consider both. Let's consider first what it means for Jesus to take upon himself guilt. Well, we can't think of guilt apart from shame. There are two ways that a person experiences destitution. We were created to be innocent, right? And in our innocence, we're supposed to, to not be ashamed. So think of Adam and Eve. They're created in the garden. And there's no sin in the garden. There's no sin in the relationship <coughs> to one another. And they were both naked. Something that should cause shame. But they were not ashamed. Why? Because there was no sin. Sin had not marked their bodies. So they were unashamed. But as soon as they rebelled against God, they went from innocent to guilty. And suddenly they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So as one moves from innocent to guilty, one moves from unashamed to shame. Or to shame. 
There is an intrinsic connection between guilt and shame. And Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, experienced both. Jesus would be found guilty by the Jewish leaders. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Interesting, we see again the title, Son of Man. We talked about this title a few weeks ago. The title does not refer to Jesus' humanity, but to Jesus' divinity. In the, in, in, in the term is used in Daniel 7. And there the prophet tells us that the Son of Man, Jesus, would present himself before the Ancient of Days, God, God the Father, and would receive dominion over all of the nations of the earth. So the term Son of Man speaks of Jesus' dominion over the nations. But instead of dominion here, Jesus is dominated. Jesus is conquered. Instead of conquering, Jesus is conquered. Jesus is delivered over. Delivered by who? Notice that Jesus would be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. No, he was not delivered by the chief priests or the scribes. Who delivered Jesus over? The Father did. God the Father delivered Jesus to sinful men in order for him to be condemned and found guilty. We know that he was delivered older, over to the Jewish leaders by Judas. But Judas was just an instrument in the hands of God in order to accomplish his eternal purposes. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Jesus, and once Jesus was delivered, they would condemn him. In other words, they would find him guilty. Guilty of what? Of course, they would accuse him of blasphemy. In Mark 14, we read that Jesus stood before the Jewish council. There, the high priest asked him if he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, meaning the Son of God. Jesus answers affirmatively, so the high priest responds, You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. But wait a second. From verse 1 of this entire gospel, Mark has been telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. How can Jesus be found guilty of speaking the truth? On the contrary, he was found guilty for rightly identifying himself as who he truly is. There's a sense in, we need, in which we need to say that the cross was the place where the greatest injustice ever to happen took place. <coughs> 
sinful men condemned the righteous Son of God. The only man to ever live a sinless life was found guilty of sin. R.C. Sproul famously used to say that we shouldn't be concerned about why good things happen to why why do bad things happen to good people? Because really that only happened once on the cross of Calvary. Everyone else is not no one else is able to claim the title of good. Only Christ is. So Christ was good in every way, was righteous in every way, was found to be guilty. Not only that, Jesus was also shamed by the Gentiles. Though it is not enough for him to be found wrongly, found guilty, he was also shamed. Not satisfied with the guilt, guilty verdict, the Jews hand Jesus over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would shame Jesus. They would mock him. They would spit on him. They would flog him before they killed him. But why was this necessary? I mean, we understand the guilt, right? We know that Jesus was found guilty. He was guilty because he took upon himself our guilt. He took upon himself our sin. But what about shame? The same is true about shame. Jesus died so that he could bear our shame. We don't often think of this. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In our entire human experience. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you see that? Mercy. How can Jesus have mercy on us? Well, he cannot have mercy on us because he's been made like us in every way. Even in the shame that he's experienced. In the faithful high priest in the service of God. And that's the only way he can make propitiation for the sins of his people. I mean, just think about it. If guilt was all that he was bearing, he could have just walked up to the cross and died. That would have been sufficient. Or, if guilt is the only thing that Jesus needed to bear, he could have incarnated at a mature age. And just as Adam was created as a matured age, Jesus could have walked up to the cross and died. If, guilty was all, if guilt was all that was necessary, that was all that he was paying for, that would have been sufficient. But he doesn't. Instead, he is born in a humble way to a humble family, in a humble city. He takes on the hardships of being an infant, a baby, a child. He grows. And as he grows, he learns in his human experience. He experiences the humility, the humiliation of the human experience. In Philippians 2, 8 tells us, In being found in the human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This verse summarizes the incarnation to the cross. Shame is a terrible thing. We all know what shame is, don't we? We all carry it with us in different ways. We all know that there are aspects of our lives that embarrass us. Situations that we wish we could take back, avoid, evade. There are seasons of our lives that we wish never happened. Decisions we wish had never, we had never made. Relationships we wish we had never had. Shame could be brought about by our actions or by actions that were done against us. Shame comes from the sin we commit and from the sins that were committed against us. We often don't know what to do with shame because we don't emphasize enough the fact that Jesus was shamed on our behalf. We don't think enough about the mockery, the spitting. We don't think enough about what Jesus suffered. We may cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, why? Why must I experience shame? Lord, why can't this just disappear? Why does this have to be a part of my life? Lord, why do I have to carry this? I've carried this shame in my life for so long. So we are afraid. We become afraid that others will find out who we really are. And they will find out the parts of our lives that we try so hard to hide. We never know what to do with shame. And we don't know what we would do if others only knew. So often, we handle shame in one of two ways. We hide it in plain sight. So, we use humor. We make fun of ourselves. We give ourselves to sarcasm and self-deprecation. Or we hide it by secluding ourselves, by not letting other people into our lives. We would never know what to do if others only knew. But neither attitude towards shame is right. Neither attitude deals with a real issue and they cause us to view people as those that should stay away from us and not close to us. When we don't deal with shame the right way, we become shallow in our relationships and unhelpful to others who, like us, are trying to deal with their own shame. But there is a better way. We can trust Jesus with our shame. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8 all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him 
deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus was shamed because of his righteousness. Do you notice a pattern? Jesus is found guilty for his righteousness. Jesus is shamed because he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Father. So Jesus is shamed for his righteousness. How is this fair? How can God who is just permit such injustice to happen to his righteous son? Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our, our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the shame, right? Despising the shame. So the cross was so glorious for Christ that the shame played no role in it. It was something that he despised. And what is Jesus experiencing now? And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus knows how to deal rightly with shame. And when we look to him, we can learn how to deal rightly as well. This means Jesus understood that there was a glory at the end of shame. When shame is conquered, joy settles in. Did you hear Isaiah 54 that we had, had read earlier, that we read earlier today in our service? Fear not. For you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. That's the ultimate destination of those who trust in Christ. For you will, for, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Do you wish that? Do you wish to forget the shame of your youth? In the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. I wish I could flesh out this verse. I, I, I wanted to preach a whole sermon on these verses. Maybe I will. But what is Isaiah saying here? Here's what God is saying through Isaiah. Israel does not have to be ashamed either for the sins of their youth or for the reproach of their old age or the destitution of their old age. Why? Because their dignity comes not from their experiences, but from God. Do not be ashamed. Why? Because your maker is your husband. Their dignity comes from the fact that God unites himself to Israel as a husband unites himself to a wife. So the world can mock us. The world can shame us and think very little of us. But God thinks the world of us. How much does God think of us? So much that he's willing to marry himself to us. A bride who is not beautiful in and of itself, but that God, through his love and his redemption, is making beautiful day in and day out. Friends, this is what Christ did for us on the cross. Though we were guilty, though we were, shame, were, were shameful, he himself bore our guilt. He himself bore our shame. He experienced them so that he could free us from them. As Christ dies 
on the cross. He is taking the shame that you and I should experience. He is taking the guilt that you and I should experience. So we can look at our life experiences and we can say there's no reason to be ashamed because Jesus covered it all with his blood. Friend, if you don't know Christ, you do not have a place to take your shame and your guilt. But if you look to Christ and you trust in his sacrifice for you, he will give your shame purpose. He will cover your guilt with his blood. So come to Christ and be known. Stop hiding behind your shame. Stop being worried about what people will think of you and know that Christ loves you enough that he gives his life to cover your guilt and your shame. It is by faith that we conquer. It is by faith that we overcome. Let me give you three points of application and then we'll be finished. First, God understands our shame. You may think that no one would ever understand you. You may think that if people only knew, they would want nothing to do with you. But God understands our shame. Shame has a companion called loneliness. Often we experience, when we experience shame, we, we experience seclusion by our own choice. But God knows us as we are. And he still loves us. Do you think sometimes that if people really knew who you were, then they wouldn't love you? Friend, God loves you with everything that you are. He has accepted you because of Christ. Nothing is greater than to be known and to be loved. So if you think you're alone in your shame and you keep finding yourself more and more secluded, tell your shame to the Lord. Come to Him. Pour out your hearts. Those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. Second, since God knows our every struggle and the opinion of men does not matter at all compared to the opinion of God, and we are accepted by God in Christ, we can be honest with others about our shame. We can be honest with one another about our shame. You see, if we all live with facades and we pretend we have no shame in our lives, we're going to create little bubbles around ourselves because we're going to create an environment where it is not okay not to be okay. But that's not what the church was designed to be. The church was a is designed to be a place where it is okay not to be okay because we know the solution. We know Christ. We can live in an environment where we freely confess our sins and our faults to one another because we know that Jesus has died and paid for our sin and our shame. So when someone shares with you their shame, point them to Christ. Pray with them. Encourage them to persevere in faith. I remember when I came to seminary, we joined a church 
And on the surface, everything looked just so right. I mean, every family had, you know, it seemed like an average of 7.5 children. And um, all the children behaved so well in the service. And, and all, the, all the families just seemed so well put together. Everybody just had such deep knowledge in theology to the point that India and I were thinking, we don't belong here. We can't be a part of this because these people are too perfect for us. That all changed when I went to a men's uh, accountability group. And friends, I left that place encouraged with the shame that was shared in that group. Because those men were struggling with sin, but they also understood the gospel. And this is what a, this is what a healthy church is, right? A healthy church is not a church where we are all sinless. That does not exist. A healthy church is a church where we recognize our sins and we know to bring it to Christ in faith and repentance. And we know to receive the strength that Christ provides so that we can overcome and we can grow. So when in a healthy church, a sinner walks in and he shares, she shares her shame with others, we're all able to say, we know, we understand, but there's somebody who knows you even deeper than we do, and we, you ought to run to him as we have. We can live in an environment where grace abounds, where we're not judgmental about sin, where we understand the struggles of this life, and we can be honest with one another because we need to point one another to Christ who bears our sin and shame. As a matter of fact, when we struggle with one another in light of the forgiveness, when we share our struggle with one another in light of our forgiveness that we have in Christ, we encourage others to be honest, to be open. So darkness flees. And friends, when we're open about our weakness, we will be open about the power, the strength of the gospel as well. Finally, even in this text, we see that our shame won't last forever. Shame is temporary. There will be a place where shame will be no more. Look at the last clause in verse 34. And after three days, Jesus says, he will rise. So Jesus would experience shame. He would experience, right, the mockery. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise. And in his rising, there would be the vindication of his sacrifice. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there was no shame left for him to bear. He bore it all. Jesus never leaves the resurrection out of his passion predictions. And we must not either. When we share that Jesus died for our sins, we must say, and on the third day he rose because our sins were paid for. And the father said the sacrifice that Jesus presented is enough. So friends, when we see Jesus face to face, that will be the end of our sin and that will be the end of our shame. Why? Because just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise one day. All three passion predictions in Mark talk about the suffering of Christ, but they all also talk about his deliverance, his triumph, his victory. Why? 
It's because Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith would be in vain and our hope to overcome shame would be in vain. All of these things, all of these benefits, all of these accomplishments that I am trying to impress in your heart today didn't simply hinge on the fact that Jesus died, but also on the fact that he rose and in his rising, he has made us free from guilt and shame. So we love the cross upon which Jesus died. Would you pray with me? Father, help us have the cross always behind us, always, in, always before us. Lord, help us know that on that cross, our sin and our guilt and our shame was paid. Father, help us live boldly because upon the resurrection of Christ, we have experienced a newness of life. Help us overcome sin and shame in this lifetime. And Lord, help us long for the day where full delivery will take place. Lord, thank you that you know us in the deepest parts of our soul, and yet you love us. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.